We're in a series going through the book of Acts together. And uh, we, we've been like, honestly, I think we're like four months into this. And it has been, it has just been so awesome. Uh, we're going to be picking up in Acts chapter 14 today. Um, so if you've got your Bibles or your version app, whatever that looks like. Uh, we left off last week going through um, Acts chapter 13, where the leaders of the church of Antioch laid hands on Paul and Barnabas and sent them off for the work that God had called them to. And so I want to show this uh, kind of a map that I showed last week. It starts off, it kind of has numbers and everything. It's kind of a crazy convoluted journey that they went on. This is their first missionary journey. They started off in Antioch over there on the right in Syria, went down to Seleucia, uh, sailed over to to Cyprus and then to Pamphylia and then up to uh, another place. It says Antioch, but it's actually a, a place kind of the same name, but it's called Pisidian. Antioch, and then they go over to Iconium. And we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 14 today at number seven there in Lystra. And this is kind of a, it's a crazy story. Honestly, it's if it all happened in one day is a crazy day. Um, some people believe it might have taken a little bit of time. I, the way that it's written, I, I feel like it, it took one day for all of this to, 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 to come down. Um, And what we're going to find here in Acts chapter 14 is we're going to see how Paul and Barnabas preach the gospel to people who don't believe or know the Bible. Kind of um, how Paul and Barnabas would preach the gospel to people like your neighbors who have never read the Bible and have never been to church. Um, And that is increasingly more and more and more as we enter into a postmodern, post-Christian world culture that that we live in, more and more people that I talk to uh, have never been to church and don't own a Bible, let alone have they ever read one. And so how would Paul and Barnabas preach the gospel to people who the Bible holds no moral authority over in their life, which which is your neighbor's? You know, when you say to your neighbor, if you ever said to your neighbor, like, um, well, you know, the Bible says, they would say, well, I could care less. Like, what are you talking about? Well, in the Bible, it says this, and they're like, yeah, but you don't understand. Like, that holy book that you consider holy holds no moral authority over my life. So how in the world do you preach the gospel to people who, um, to, who live in, in that reality? So we're going to pick it up, Acts chapter 14, like we do every week. Would you mind standing to your feet as we read the Word of God, as we honor the reading of God's Word? Acts chapter 14, we're going to start in verse 8 and then work our way down to verse 22. Capture this day. In Lystra, this is where they are, sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking, and Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods must have come down in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought in bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. Verse 14, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed into the crowd shouting, friends, whoa, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. 
We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he's not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. And even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. And then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. And the next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of people, of disciples. And then they returned to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraged them to remain true to the faith. And then he says, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that, that your word is powerful, living, active, sharper than a double-edged sword. Um, even, even when we've never read the Bible, even when we consider it holding no moral authority in our life, the word of God goes forth and it does not return back void. And so we believe that um, uh, apart from the TED talk that I might have to offer, um, the word of God actually changes lives. And so God, when we preach it and when, when it goes forth, I pray that uh, we wouldn't leave this place the same people that we came in as. Lord, I pray that it would change us from the inside out, mold us, make us, and break us to become more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. You be seated. Thanks. So uh, let, let's dig into this, kind of like we do um, each week. We kind of walk down through it, and then I, I try to help bring it to life a little bit for you. Uh, verse 9, um, well, verse 8 kind of starts out with this unnamed man. We, we never know his name. We don't learn his name. He is a lame guy that uh, lives in the city of Lystra. He's never been able to walk. We don't know if he's paralyzed or why he can't walk, but uh, we do know that, uh, that he is He's lame and has been that way all of his life. In verse 9, it says that he listened to Paul as he was speaking. And then, and then this, this weird thing happens. Like Paul looks directly at him and saw that he had faith to be healed. Now, I've wondered this as I've been studying this week and just reading through it just like you. Like, have you ever wondered, like, what in the world happened there? Like, how did Paul see that this guy had faith to be healed? He's speaking to a crowd of people. All of a sudden, he says, no, there's something that he recognized in the midst of the crowd and seeing a lame guy, um, that, that there was faith there to be healed. I don't know if it was the way he looked at, at Paul. We have no idea what happened. And as I've been just praying through that, it, I think it's this reality that I think all of us, if we've been Christians for any length of time, have kind of walked into or maybe stumbled across. I think that Paul was not just simply preaching a message. I think that he was asking the Holy Spirit this question in the midst of preaching. And it was this, Holy Spirit, what are you doing right now? Honestly, this is something that the Lord's been teaching me over the past few years. Like in the, and, uh, and, and it's not like an audible, like this thus saith the Lord to me. It's just this knowing in my knower. That's what I say when God kind of speaks to me. It's this in all of what you're doing, make sure you see what it is that I'm doing. And I think that as Paul's teaching, as he's preaching, as he's in the midst of, of talking to these people and telling them the gospel, he's asking the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, what is it that you're doing 
right now. And do you know that you don't have to be a pastor or a preacher or be even in a holy group of people like a church service right now in order to do that? You can be on the phone, you can be at work, you can be driving your kids to soccer practice, you can be with a friend, you can be doing anything and in the midst of it be asking the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, what is it that you're doing right now? I mean, there's a lot of stuff that I'm doing. I know we're all busy, we all got, we got all kinds of things and responsibilities, but what would it look like if you started asking the Holy Spirit, what is it that you're doing right now? And when you start asking that question, you start recognizing things. You start seeing things and I don't know why, but I feel like there's something different here. Maybe you recognize in the midst of a crowd a lame man that needs to be healed or maybe in the midst of the grocery store you recognize somebody who's you don't know, but they're contemplating suicide and need to be loved on. Like God starts to put a draw on the anointing in our lives when we start asking him, God, what is it that you're doing right now? Amen? This is what Jesus does. He says, I'm about my father's business. I only do what I see my father doing. I say what I, say, what I hear my father saying. Like I am about my father's business. And this is what happens to Paul in verse 10. Paul sees a guy. And for some reason, he recognizes that this guy has faith to be healed, and he just calls out in verse 10, it says, stand up on your feet. And at that, the man jumps up and began to walk. All of a sudden, he's got muscles he never had before. All of a sudden, he has strength that he never had before. All of a sudden, he is jumping and sashaying um, that he, he never even could walk before. He's, he's doing the moonwalk. I mean, he's doing things he could never do before because the reality is it's in this moment that he receives the Word of God, that he also receives the power to obey the Word of God. I think that's the beautiful thing about, about God's Word is that when we hear the command of God, sometimes we can, even as we get into the word of God, we read the command of God and we think, man, that's too hard. I, I can't do this. I think I want us to understand, just like this lame guy who literally had never walked in his whole life, when he received the command of God, I want you to know, it's not simply hard, it's impossible to do without the intervention of God. So when, you, when we receive the, the command of God, of the word of God in our life, and we're like, man, this is too hard. I don't agree with this. I don't, I, I don't like this. this I, I can't do this. God says, I, I know. That's why you need me. And when the word of God goes forth, it does not come back void. So it has inherently in it the power to achieve it. That's the beauty of the difference between what I might have to say and what the word of God has to say. There's something in the word that Paul speaks when he says, get up. The guy that has never gotten up in his life jumps up to his feet and has the power now to achieve it. And watch how the crowd responds, verse, 12, verse 11. It says this, when, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. And Barnabas they called Zeus, Paul they called Hermes because he was the, the chief speaker. So they're so impressed by Paul and Barnabas, they're so impressed by this miracle that they look at them and they're like, you dudes must be gods. And they're like, Barnabas, you gotta be Zeus because I don't know, maybe he was jacked and had a massive beard and they're like, you gotta be Zeus, you're awesome. And then he looks at Paul and they're like, you gotta be Hermes because Hermes was known as the messenger, the mouthpiece of the gods and he talked a lot. So they're like, you, you gotta be Hermes and, and this is Zeus. And now here's the, here's the weird thing. Why would they automatically go and say, well, we, that's Zeus and, and that's Hermes? 
Why not Aphrodite? Why not all these other people? Like, why these two gods in particular? So as I was studying, um, this is what I found out. Like, there was this myth, because all of this is mythological stuff, right? There is this myth that in years past, Zeus and Hermes had visited Lystra, this same town. Now, let me, tell, let me tell you the myth. So the myth goes like this. Zeus and Hermes came down in human form, and uh, they were looking for hospitality among the people of Lystra. So they went knocking door to door to door, looking for hospitality. And guess what? Nobody invited them in for dinner, except for one elderly couple. So do you know what these gods did, Zeus and Hermes, out of their disappointment? They killed and wiped out the entire city except for this one elderly couple. <laughs> great, great, great gods, right? That's pretty awesome. Because you didn't invite them for dinner, so they just wiped out everybody. So I want you to understand, it's a myth, right? But people believed it. And so now the crowd thinks that Zeus and Hermes are back. And everybody's like, Zeus and Hermes are my favorite. You're my favorite gods out of all of them, right? Like, this is, you know what we should do, guys? We should have a parade for these guys. Zeus and Hermes are here. We love you. Hurry up. Hey, somebody call the Shriners to get their weird little midget motorcycles out. Let's get the, <laughs> cue the baton twirlers. Like, let's get a band, man. We're going to start a parade. This is going to be awesome. So the Shriners are going out like, me, 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 and the weird thing. I don't know why they do this, but they're like having a blast. And the, the, everyone's like, yeah, Zeus and Hermes, don't kill us, you know. This is awesome. Now, the weird thing is, is that Paul and Barnabas don't realize that what's going on because they're speaking in their Lyconian language. We saw that, right? So they're just like, man, these people in Lystra really know how to treat visitors, right? This is awesome. They're rolling out the red carpet for us. How's that, Paul and Barnabas? Yeah, they're like, this is awesome, right? And just when you think it's okay, it gets really weird. Verse 13 the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city. So you've got this, this, this priest of a mythological god comes into town to join the parade. <laughs> he comes before Santa. And <laughs> it says this, he brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. So all of a sudden, this parade gets weird, right? They start... Um, He's sharpening his swords because he's ready to slay cows in front of them for a sacrifice to them. And verse 14, it says, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they're like, wait, what's going on here? This is weird. They tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd which seems equally kind of out of control, like that they would just start ripping their clothes. I don't know if you've ever been that distraught that you thought, I'm going to take this and rip it and run into a crowd. They are so distraught. Why? Because the, the Jewish um, response to blasphemy was to tear at their clothes. And so they're freaking out. Why? Because the crowd was trying to worship them as gods. And they're on a missionary journey trying to point people to God. This is like, no, this is not really good, right? And I was thinking about this, like the subtle way that Christians make people into idols it is when we worship the minister rather than the Lord. 
the, the, the subtle way that American Christians, <laughs> keep poking at you, um, turn people into idols is when we put a person on a pedestal rather than Christ on the throne. Um, and this crowd falls into the very same thing that we can fall into when we start worshiping the preacher rather than the one who the preacher is preaching about. And, uh, and uh, we see this a lot today, but it's not new. Paul addresses it to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You may remember, he's, you know, they're all kind of like, well, I follow Apollos, I follow Paul, I follow all, and he yells at them. This is what he says. One of, when one of you says in verse 4, I'm a follower of Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, or you might say, I, I follow Stephen Furtick. I, I follow Robert Morris. I follow Bill Johnson. I, I follow Pastor Justin. I don't have many, but, but maybe one of you. Like, I, I, follow, I follow this guy, right? And then he says, aren't you acting just like people of the world? After all, who is Apollos? Who's Paul? Who's Stephen Furtick? We are only God's servants through whom you believed the good news. Each of us did the work the Lord gave us. Yikes. The word of the Lord. Um, <laughs> verse, verse 6, it says this, I, I planted the seed in your hearts, Apollos watered it, but it was God who made it grow. In other words, it's okay to appreciate people, but follow Jesus. Is this me? Am I good? Hold on one second. It's what you do for not shaving completely. Um, it's cool. It's what the cool kids do. Um, so follow Jesus and appreciate people. So th this, is, this is the title of my message today is There's No Super Christians. There's no, did you know there's no celebrities in the body of Christ? There are no celebrities in the body of Christ. There's, there's no like, well, there's the eye, there's the hand, there's the feet, and then there's the celebrity, the famous one. There's no celebrities in the body of Christ. And Paul and Barnabas were so aware of this, and they're so um, upset about this. They know that if they allow the crowd to idolize them, then it would ruin the gospel. And so watch how they preach the gospel to people who don't know or believe the Bible. Verse 15, it says, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made, who made the heavens and the earth and everything in them. And he's telling them, essentially, without telling them, to repent and believe. He's preaching the gospel to people who don't have any Old Testament knowledge. They don't know about, you know, well, John the Baptist came and told us that we are supposed to repent and be baptized, but he's telling them without telling them that they need to repent and believe. He's saying to turn away from these worthless things, these idols, these gods made by humans. In other words, repent, turn away from those things, but don't just turn away from them, turn towards the living God, the creator of everything. Repent and believe. And then he continues in verse 16. He says, in the past, he, God, God, let all nations go their own way, yet he's not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons, and he provides you with plenty of food 
and fills your hearts with joy. So Paul's saying, look around. You guys have made a God out of everything. And then he starts referencing them. He's literally like, he's like, he talks about the rain. He's like, Zeus is the God of rain. Demeter is the, the, the God of the harvest, the, uh, the crops in their seasons. There's even a God for the goddess of joy. And he's saying, you've made up gods for all good things in your life, but I'm telling you that there is one true creator God that is behind all of it. All of it. James 1.17 says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He's addressing these, these, this crowd, these people, and saying, like, you all are, you fear this fickle God who would smite you if you didn't invite him in for dinner, but I'm telling you that my God created you. My God blesses you. Our God provides for you. He heals you. He loves you, and he sent his son to die for you, and you don't even follow him. And he still does these things for you. In verse 18, it, it kills me. It says, he drops the mic, and then it says, even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. So, so, so Paul preaches this awesome message, and he points them to God, and they're like, um, so we have these bulls? Can we just kill one cow, maybe? Just, is, that, can we just, is that okay? I mean, they're not going to sacrifice themselves. Maybe we could just do this. Isn't it interesting that even in the face of learning the truth, it is still hard to unlearn the dysfunction that seems so normal? Let me say this differently. Um, many times, even when we're confronted with the truth of the gospel, when, when we're confronted with the truth of God's word, it's not just about receiving truth, it's also about unlearning the dysfunction that has become normal. And we do this, we do this even here in America, right? We, we, we are continually taking the American dream and American ideology and just spreading just Jesus chocolate sauce on it and calling it Christianity. When, when God is continually, and even as we've been going through the book of Acts, continually extricating these two things to show us truly what biblical theology looks like. And many times it doesn't match up with the American dream that we hold so tightly to. I'll move on, don't worry. Verse 19, he says, Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. Think about this. These people traveled like about 100 miles to simply try to discredit Paul and Barnabas. They came to, to just seriously discredit these guys, traveled 100 miles to do it. Isn't it interesting how passionate some people are about their unbelief? Isn't it? It, it, it always amazes me how passionate some people are about their unbelief. I mean, I find that sometimes atheists can be the, the, the most passionate unbelievers, proponents of their unfaith. What scares me even more is how dispassionate believers can be with the truth. I mean, you just look at, let's just look at Afghanistan right now, right? We'll, we'll, we'll kind of get the relief valve on you personally. Like, we have people, the Taliban, um, that are incredibly passionate about their lie. And yet, you know, where, where's the church rising up in the midst of it? 
It's, it's, it's the difficulty that we see. It's not just here, it, it, and it's not just in Afghanistan. It, it happens here even in our world today, in America. And then this thing takes an unforeseen twist. It continues in verse 19. It says, They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. This is a little unexpected, right? I mean, think about this. He goes from being idolized to demonized in one day. So we've got this crowd that, that literally organized an impromptu parade with no party planning committee. The Shriners are still on their midget motorcycles weaving through the crowd. And it literally ends with Paul being stoned, dragged and dumped outside the city and left for dead. Never trust a crowd. <laughs> no offense. Never, never trust. Because why? Because crowds are fickle. Incredibly fickle. They can be your fans one moment and an angry mob the next. Never trust a crowd. Think about this. The same crowd that was singing songs to Jesus as he entered Jerusalem on a donkey just a few days later was yelling, crucify him. Never trust a crowd. Crowds are fickle at best. Verse 20. It says, but after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. This, this verse right here, verse 20, if you don't read any other verses, this one has wrecked me all week. This, quite honestly, is the, uh, the miracle of all miracles. Because what just happened here in um, this non-event that happened in verse 20 um, leaves a whole lot to be questioned. Was he dead? Was he almost dead? We don't really know. It doesn't really say. I will say that something awesome just happened, right? Either he was raised from the dead and he was dead and he was raised up, or he was somehow miraculously healed from being stoned, dragged, and left for dead. Because the Bible just says this, he got up. And and they're gathered around him. It says the, the apostles gathered around him. I hope, it doesn't even say they were praying for him. I hope maybe one guy at least was like, oh, Lord Jesus, just praying for him. I don't know if he freaked them out by just being like, <gasps> you know, like, oh my God, you're alive. You know, like I have no idea what happened there. But like all of a sudden it just, he got up. And, and that's a miracle of all miracles. Like that's amazing that this guy who was dead or almost dead gets up and gets up, let alone. But, but what he does once he gets up Read it for yourself. What he does when he gets up is the greatest miracle. It says that he walks back into the same city he was just dragged out of. Why would anyone do that? That lit it literally makes no sense to me. It is the most unexpected, probably most insane thing that I would think of doing if I was just raised from the dead or healed so that I could now walk. I would not be thinking, what should we do next? Round two, right? Like, yeah, I'd be like, drag, drag me away, guys. Just keep dragging me. Just keep going. Just go. I don't even care where we're going. Just get me out of here, right? No, but this guy walks back into the same city that he was just dragged out of. I don't know if he literally followed the drag marks in the sand that he left on his way out of the city as he walked back into it. But think about what it must have been like as he walked back into the city. 
you probably could hear a pin drop. Oh my gosh, is that him? He's back. Like, I, can't, I cannot even imagine what that must have been like as he walks back into that city. And I've been praying about it all week. Like, I wonder, I have all these, these questions in my mind. Like, I wonder if he went back to show those who tried to harm him that they had no hold over him. <laughs> I wonder if his miraculous return actually made more of an impact than his sermons ever would. I wonder that um, if, if this was the point where Paul would come to an understanding that he would later write about where he wrote, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I wonder if kind of like what Kate was talking about in between in our worship time where she was talking about that spiritual rain axe, there was something that he discovered as he was raised from the dead or raised from whatever he was in the heap of healing he needed and walked back in. He had this spiritual rain axe and that like, I'm living for something beyond this life, so you really don't have a hold on me. This isn't the end. And what's amazing to me in verse 20, keep reading, it says this, the next day he and Barnabas left for Derby. So <laughs> just capture this. He, he, gets, he, he goes into Lystra, stoned, killed, left for dead. They drag him outside of the city. He walks back into the city. And then the next day he decides to leave. Why? I don't know. Maybe it's like, oh, I'm going to leave the city, but I'm not going to leave dragged out. I'm going to leave on my own two feet. Thank you very much. Because the next morning, he's like, okay, we can go now. We can go now? Like, what was the point of going back? I have no idea. But look at what it keeps going. It says, they preached the gospel in that city, in Derby, and won a large number of disciples. And then, catch this, they returned to where? Lystra. This guy's crazy. And Iconium and Antioch, so literally he goes, he goes into Lystra, gets killed, dragged out of Lystra, goes back into Lystra, then he decides to leave, then he comes back into Lystra. Three times this guy comes back into the city where people killed him and dragged him out of the city, left for dead. Why in the world would he do that? Why in the world would he not just go to new cities? If it were me, I'd be like, yeah, we kind of, I don't know, Lystra, Lystra was a tough city. We should probably go someplace different, right? A little bit easier, this, this back around, you know? No, he goes back to the same cities of people that kicked him out or left him for dead. Why would he go back to the same places? It says in verse 22, to strengthen the disciples and encourage them to remain true to the faith. <sighs> Even in the midst of his own personal cost, he goes back into the same cities because there are believers in there that need to be strengthened. There are people in there that ne he needs to just encourage them to remain true to the faith. And what was he telling them? Right there. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Keep that up there for a second. This, this very rarely makes it onto um, mugs. They very rarely sell this on mugs. I, I mean, there, there's a, probably a few that you could find, but they go like hotcakes, right? Like, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. And you first read this, I don't know, I do, and I'm like, at first blush, it sounds a whole lot like, okay, so I have to go through hardships and suffering in order to go to heaven. 
Surely he's not saying that because it would go against everything else that he writes about. So what is it that he's, that he's talking about? Well, I think, that's, I think there's something in his near-death experience that he found. I, I think there's something that he realized that suffering is not the end. And this is hard for us to hear, and I, I know this, it, do, it doesn't grow megachurches, but like, um, I, think, I think the hard part for us is this reality that if all we're consumed with is what is happening right now in front of our face in this present life, then suffering is an impediment to the very creation of God, which many of us would say is, well, God wants me to be happy. And so we create a God in our own image that provides happiness for us. And if we believe that and think that all that is here is this life, then suffering is an impediment to the goal of life, happiness. And it's the end of it all. But when you, I don't know, I, I have to think that he discovered something in his near death or death risen from life experience where he just realized that he's running a race that lives far beyond this life and that suffering just doesn't have much hold on him anymore, which is how he can go and look an angry mob in the face without any fear of them. To which he can write later on, to live is Christ and to die is gain. In other words, like, if, I, if you don't kill me, awesome. I get to tell you about Jesus. And if I die, awesome. I get to be with Jesus. Like, it was just, this was just innate in him. And I, I'm not saying that I understand it. I'm not saying that I have a, a knowing of this. I'm just saying that my spirit leaps towards it. Of this freedom from the shackles of this earth and the fear of man. He has this fear of God that just overrides it to where he can look at an angry mob and say, you have no hold on me. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28 says this. Jesus wrote, Jesus said, don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. (laughs) As we see Paul walking back into a town, he has no business walking back into. I just have to believe that he discovered something that brought him freedom, that his fear of God overcame any fear of man, that there is more than just this life. Where Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are heavy, laden, and weary and I will give you rest for your souls, that there is something, a transaction, that Christ gives us in the midst of the chaos of life where there is a deep rest and peace for our souls, where we can sing songs like, you know, you can have all this world, but just give me Jesus. It's the heartbeat of Paul. Why don't you stand with me? Like I said, I, I, I don't necessarily know that I quite understand it because I, I think you have to walk through it to understand it. And some of you that have been through incredible suffering and um, trying times in your life, you have an inkling of what that looks like. Where that fear of God is just so real to you in your, in your life. I want to end with a scripture here. Romans chapter 21, or 1 verse 21. Paul wrote, yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. Does that sound familiar? Just come up with ideas of what we think God looks like. 
As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people or birds or animals or reptiles. I think inherently in us, we can look at the people of Lystra and say, I mean, these polytheists, Greek, crazy people, what, what in the world? They have a God for everything under the sun. And yet I believe that we struggle day in and day out with, with attempting to worship a God that looks a whole lot like us and thinks like us and acts like us and is really kind of made up by us rather than an all-creator God who created us. So how do we know? How do we know what he looks like? How do we know if we're following ourselves or following God? There's this article where I was reading of these college students that um, were asked this question, what is God like? And one of them commented and said, you know, it would be so helpful if God would just take a selfie, right? Wouldn't that be easier? He did. His name is Jesus. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. In other words, Jesus makes the unseeable seeable. Jesus makes the unknowable knowable. He makes the untouchable touchable. He is the visible image of the invisible God. He is perfect theology. So if you want to know what God looks like, follow Jesus. He is the living word. Amen? Amen. Follow him. Now, here's the thing. If he is the living word, then that means that we have to get into this book. And you're like, well, I've never read it before. Now would be a good time. Because if you know the word, then it can come out of you when you need it. And if you don't know the living word, then it can't come out of you because it's not in you. As we get into the word of God, the living word can come out of us. And so when we're walking through our lives and doing all the things in our doing, we can, we're able to see and know what it is that God is doing in our midst. <laughs> if you want to know what God's up to, ask him, Lord, in the midst of all of my doing, what is it that you are up to right now? Amen? So Lord Jesus, I pray that as we, as we just close in worship today, I pray that we would be walking in that reality that Jesus, you are the visible image of the invisible God. You make the unseeable seeable. You make the unknowable knowable. Lord, I, I just ask that as, as believers that we would walk in the midst of all of our doing, asking, Holy Spirit, what is it that you're doing right now? Lord, what are you doing right now? Lord, we thank you. I pray that you'd have your way in us as followers of Jesus, whether we live in Afghanistan or in Arundel. God, I pray that we would be ordered and walk according to your word, realizing that it's not just hard, it's impossible to do without the intervention of your Holy Spirit. And it's in the very word of God that gives us the, the power to walk in obedience to it. And so, Jesus, we thank you. I, we lift you up today. We lift up our friends and brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. We lift up our, our brothers and sisters and um, next-door neighbors that don't know you. 
Lord, we pray that the word of God, the very word, would be the power and, and life to every person that hears it, that it would not return back void. And so we lift you up today. Let's worship him, church.